This is the Data Science Conversations podcast with Damien Dehan and Dr. Philip Diesinger, featuring cutting-edge AI and data science research from the world's leading academic minds, so you can expand your knowledge and grow your career. This show is sponsored by Data Science Talent. Welcome to the Data Science Conversations podcast. My name is Damien Dehan, and I'm here with Dr. Philip Diesinger. And this conversation is part two of our session with Dr. Eileen Cullity uh, of the Institute for Future Media and Journalism at Dublin City University and Dr. Stefan Latvie of Telecom Paris. In this episode, uh, we're discussing the implications of disinformation on the media, the role of fact-checking, how to deal with deep fakes uh, and the current state of detection, what companies like Adobe and Microsoft are doing about deep fakes and the future role of GANs in detecting deep fakes. So Eileen, why do you think people are sharing uh, either deep fake or cheap fake content? Well, I think there's been a rather simplistic idea that came out of Brexit and the US presidential election that anybody who engaged or shared with fake content or false content believed it but there's no reason to suppose that they actually believed it at all there are many many reasons why people engage with this type of content and this is increasingly backed up by uh, survey studies so for example uh, somebody might share fake content because they want to criticize it or provoke a discussion or they might find it funny or entertaining or so on and i would even imagine with deep fakes that most people listening have encountered deep fakes because somebody shared an informational video explaining the technology or somebody shared a funny video showing how it could be used for comedy. So those were fake videos, but they were shared in a context which everyone's quite aware of what they are. So another huge area of research is about people sharing false information because they want to help others. These are pro-social behaviors. So if you think of somebody who comes across a piece of content saying that vaccines are dangerous, and then they know someone else who's about to vaccinate their child, it's a pro-social action, or it's perceived to be pro-social, to share that and say, you know, maybe you should read this, maybe you should check this out. And I think long-term, if we want to counteract disinformation, one of the things we've got to do is to get people to stop doing that and to realize that you shouldn't just share disinformation, or you shouldn't share information unless you're, you're pretty sure that it's accurate or reliable, because you could be making it worse. Do we know how far and how fast disinformation spreads? Yeah, there have been some um, big data studies that found that uh, false news will travel faster and further than real news. And certainly information that provokes people's uh, negative emotions like fear or anger tends to get more engagement than standard uh, reliable statements. But I think in terms of understanding those issues, we have a major setback, which is that we don't have a massive amount of data to work with from the platforms. So there are big data studies, there are experimental studies on how audiences respond, but what's missing is large scale data from the platforms. So we're in this very unusual scenario where there's great concern about disinformation. Policymakers are setting up boards and um, advisory boards to uh, come up with solutions but we actually understand the problem uh, very poorly in terms of what is the scale, what is the impact, and are these countermeasures effective? So you're saying not having a reliable method to measure the impact of false information is currently part of the problem? 
Exactly. We know there is a lot of disinformation there. I think that's obvious to most people if they're scrolling through their, their social media feeds. But we don't know whether how many people actually believe it. We can see engagement figures, but the engagement figures are the, the metrics that the platforms themselves use. It doesn't actually, somebody liking or sharing doesn't actually mean they believe it or they endorse it. So there's this huge gap in our understanding of what kind of content is influencing people and in what circumstances. What do people do after they um, engage with a piece of disinformation? What do they do after they engage with a fact check? And until we know that, I think we're really operating uh, blindfolded in this area. I was at a seminar during the summer where a researcher made an analogy to big tobacco and smoking. And he said, imagine if the public authorities who were trying to find out about the dangers of smoking could only access data from big tobacco companies and they refused to share it. If there was no independent researchers who could verify what are the dangers, what are the risks and what should be done. And we're kind of operating in that scenario right now. Although the EU is setting up new projects which are trying to negotiate greater access for independent researchers to data from the platforms. What are implications of this diminishing trust in media that we're currently experiencing? Well, the, the entire history of photography is one of people casting doubt on the authenticity of images. And even now, if you follow any of the news reports about the World Photography Prizes, there's often questions about well, how authentic is that, that image. And there have been some huge scandals about the framing of images. So when we think about deep fakes, I don't think we should just assume we're moving from a world where we could completely trust images to suddenly where we can't uh, trust them at all. And the Syrian war provides a very good example of these, these core issues primarily because foreign correspondents were not allowed into the country. So there were very few journalists on the ground able to verify what was happening. And instead, all the video and footage from Syria was filmed by fighters, civilians, first responders who were reporting the war themselves and then putting that up on YouTube. But once that happened, this witness footage was called into question by people who were uh, pro-Assad. And they said it was fake. Conspiracy theorists picked it up and said that these were crisis actors. So it started this whole uh, debate about how can you trust these images? And one of the outcomes of that was actually the development of a new area within journalism of verification experts. So these are people who specialize in verifying social media footage. And that's become quite advanced. There are also social media agencies where they take content and they will authenticate it and verify that it was filmed in a particular place at a particular time. What role does fact-checking play to deal with rapidly spreading false information? Well, there's been a huge growth in fact-checking, in part because one of Facebook's responses to all the criticism it receives over disinformation has been to fund and support fact-checking. So the across the world, there's been a great growth in fact-checking expertise, fact-checking outlets, and a lot of newsrooms now have fact-checkers on their staff. And there's very mixed evidence about the impact of fact checks. So first of all, it, it's pretty clear that fact checking has a lot of disadvantages. It's very slow. It will happen maybe a number of days after the claim has already gone out. So there's a delay. You might not get all of the people who were originally exposed to the disinformation. There's also a limitation in terms of what can be fact checked, particularly when we're talking about political issues or ideological issues, the kinds of fake claims or bias that we're seeing, they're not necessarily 
easily identified facts. It's a matter of opinion. And, and a big topic that animates a lot of disinformation in Europe is about immigration figures and crime. And yet, if you look at the academic literature, academics are still arguing about how do you best measure crime and how do you actually measure whether immigrants have an impact on crime. So if the leading academics and criminologists are still debating about how to do it, I think it's unrealistic to expect a fact checker who's maybe spending a few hours on, um, on a claim to be able to come up with a good response to something. So fact checking is not a panacea at all. And of course, it really doesn't work for videos, for uh, lengthy YouTube videos that might go on for a couple of hours. How is a fact checker supposed to, to respond to those? Many of the proponents of fact-checking are well aware of these limitations. And they would argue that what they're doing isn't necessarily trying to change people's minds or correct them, but they are setting the record straight. So if somebody makes a false claim and puts it out there in the public, it is important that someone else has come along and gathered the evidence and said, well, no, this is what we know about this topic. This is why that was wrong. And it is there on the record if people go looking for it or if um, activists or others who are working on that cause or topic can use it as a resource. So perhaps it's a mistake to think of fact-checking as a direct correction to disinformation. What do you think is the best way to use fact-checking as a tool to combat false information? Fact-checking is quite a new practice. So it has been practiced in the United States for a long time, but it's become mainstream quite quickly. So there's still a lot of discussion about best practice and what should they be doing. Up until a few years ago, fact-checkers primarily confined themselves to political statements. And now they're dealing with uh, conspiracy theorists and memes. They're in a whole other area. And the volume of content is intense and their resources are limited. So there's a big question about what is the best way to present and to, to manage their workflow. And so if they respond to every piece of disinformation that's out there and try to set the record straight, that, that's pointless because we don't even know that people were believing the disinformation in the first place. So it's important to see what's actually gaining momentum and timing responses in a way that they will be taken up by audiences. What strategies are used to make sure fact-checking reaches the right audience? Well, it doesn't always need to be seen. They're, they're acting as a resource is a really important one. Because if you debunk a piece of information when you come across it, you then have that as a resource. And if it then becomes uh, mainstream or it's being exposed to a lot of people, you have it ready. But if you're debunking things and publishing that all the time, you could actually be just giving more amplification to false claims. So sometimes it's better not to publish fact checks until a substantial number of people are sharing it and believing it. And there was very good examples of this resource work during uh, COVID-19 where fact checkers and journalists began to collaborate um, on an unprecedented scale to save themselves time. So if a fact checker in Italy um, debunked a claim, they would share that. And then the fact checker in France didn't have to go and do all of that work again. They already had the work there. So it's the shared resource element, I think, is really important for industry and for news media. Do you have an example of such a case where fact-checked information was held back and then strategically released at a later point? I don't have a specific example, but I know that would be common practice. So First Draft, which would be one of the leading verification outlets, and they do a lot of training, 
they would recommend that all newsrooms should have some kind of social media monitoring software, so like a commercial service like Newswhip, where they can see what content is trending. And until something is trending, it would be better not to share it. But one, one example of it, um, it's not quite fact-checking, but if you remember the claim that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump for the 2016 election. So this claim went um, all over the internet really quickly, mainly because it was shared by journalists. So originally it was uh, not getting much traction at all, and it's only when it's picked up by the news media saying, look how crazy this disinformation is, that suddenly everybody knows about it. If it wasn't picked up and amplified by journalists in the first place, none of us would have known about it at all. So this amplification issue is really important. If you want to counter disinformation, you can't be amplifying it at the same time. So Philip, perhaps you can give us an overview of the current state of play with regard to uh, detection of deepfakes. Dealing with deepfakes seems to be mostly an unsolved problem at the moment. However, different types of strategies have been emerging in the past 24 months. One of these strategies is focusing on content verification. Applications of content verification are limited because it is intrinsically a lot of effort and still involves large amounts of manual labor at the moment. We have already discussed the growing importance of fact-checking earlier. Some people are working on new types of standards for media authentication. Smart mortar marking or media verification markers are being discussed, for instance, to enable chain of custody locking. Overall, media provenance seems to be a hot topic at the moment and media authenticity could be supported by technologies like blockchain. And of course, new legislation and regulations might play a role in the future as well. A second strategy revolves around protecting authentic material. YouTube, for instance, is using a content-specific ID, but this approach would only protect one platform at the moment. Adobe is working on a digital content authenticity initiative, but as far as I know, it is currently focused on images only. Microsoft has a project called AMP, Ether Media Provenance. This is close to the idea of certifying content provenance and logging the chain of custody of a piece of media. There are a lot of discussions around using blockchain to protect authentic videos and images, potentially even using those protected materials then to train anti-deepfake AIs, which could help identify fake materials on a larger scale. A more offensive strategy to deal with deepfakes is of course centering around detection of deepfakes. The expectation here seems to be that this will evolve into some sort of cat and mouse game, similar to what cybersecurity is already now. Um, some of the experts, however, are more pessimistic and believe that deepfake detection might become entirely impossible in the relatively near future, uh, which would render this approach, of course, entirely obsolete. There are different approaches to detect deepfakes. One approach is trying to find image processing artifacts. This is basically a white box approach that requires somewhat good knowledge of how deepfakes are made. Microsoft published a paper on this a couple of months ago. Uh, they call it Face X-Ray. And the goal here is to detect forgery in face images. In this case, they use image processing to expose blending of multiple images. Inconsistencies in deepfakes can also be hidden in biological signals. For instance, inconsistent heartbeats, unusual blinking patterns, or even blushing can be used to detect fake content. These inconsistencies can also include unusual speech patterns or mouth motion. The US DARPA has a project called SEMA4, Semantic Forensics, which attempts to automate deepfake detection using semantic detection. They can detect fake user profiles, for instance, by gender mismatches between a name and the profile picture, or they use GANs to detect synthetic profile pictures 
uh, with things like mismatching earlobes, earrings or teeth. We have a link to one of their talks with some really great examples in the description below. Stefan, what role do you think will GANs play in the future in this cat and mouse game of detecting deepfakes? Here, I think this cat and mouse game is a bit specific because most of these techniques for deepfake are based on uh, GAN, so generative adversarial networks. And so GANs are based on two networks. One is called generator, is in charge of generating the image. And the second network, the discriminator, is in charge of predicting if the input is input image is a real or a fake image. And so the problem here is that the better the discriminator is, the better the generator will be. And so if someone comes with an algorithm that uses teeth to detect deep fakes, because we could see that usually teeth are not really realistic in deep fakes, we can design a new discriminator network that will focus especially on the teeth in such a way that it will improve the generator to generate more realistic teeth. And in this way, it would be really hard to um, generate deep fakes, I mean, to, to prevent this cat and, and uh, mouse game. I mean, I'm not sure the, the mouse can win this game in the end. Thanks, Stefan. So Eileen, perhaps could you give some uh, advice to people around how they should or shouldn't share uh, content online? So I would say the most important thing anyone can do is always check the source of a piece of content or information. So where has it come from? Who has created it? And if you're still unsure, you can check other sources. So just cross-referencing. And if something has happened, you know, it should usually be reported by more than one outlet and it will be reported by some media outlet. So whatever you consider to be a reliable source, whether it's the BBC or CNN, you can check those sources to see what's there. For more everyday things on social media, maybe things that aren't news sources, you can use things like uh, Google reverse image search to see has this image been used in other places. Um, and checking reference sites like Snopes for what are the the major um, hoaxes that are going around. And then the most important thing is perhaps to not share a piece of content if you think it might be untrue or if you think it could be uh, potentially damaging to somebody else. So check first and share after. Do you just want to give us an overview of your forthcoming uh, book, Eileen? Sure. This book with uh, Dr. Jane Souter, we try to demystify disinformation. And we try and reduce it to its core constituents. So we talk about the, the platforms that enable it, the bad actors who create it, the audiences who receive it and give it meaning, and then the various countermeasures that are being proposed uh, to counteract it. And the key thing that we focus on is that disinformation is often a symptom of deeper issues. So we shouldn't focus overly on the problem of disinformation content. We need to think about what is happening in our societies and in our democracies that is allowing these uh, pathologies to fester. So I invite all the people that are interested in uh, our work to look at our video that is online and the link will be shared. And also we made the, the code available online to generate these videos. So it's really easy to use. We have this uh, collab implementation that facilitates uh, the deployment of our code. So if you want to get an idea of what we can do with this kind of technology, I think uh, it's a good start and it's a good way to, yeah, to get in touch with this topic. Um, 
thank you so much to uh, Philip uh, and, of course, our two fantastic guests, uh, Stefan and Eileen. Uh, thanks also to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do share on social media and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. And do look out uh, in the show notes for the, uh, the various papers and books that were mentioned. And we will see you on the forthcoming episode that Stefan has mentioned, the paper on first order motion model. Thank you.